Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome again to this latest in our series of Classical Conversations, podcasts presented by the Seattle Chamber Music Society. My name is Dave Beck, and I'm a host and producer from 94.9 KUOW Public Radio in Seattle. I'm also a local cellist and longtime friend and fan of the Seattle Chamber Music Society. As we always do, we have a live audience with us here in Soundbridge at Benaroya Hall in Seattle on July 1st, 2013. We do these podcasts as part of the winter and summer festivals at the Seattle Chamber Music Society. The summer festival just got underway spectacularly, in fact, this past Saturday evening here in the Nordstrom Recital Hall at Benaroya. And playing on Saturday night, as he will be on many nights to come over the next month, is Seattle Chamber Music Society violinist and artistic director, James Ennis. And let us welcome him back. Thank you very much, Dave. Thank you, everyone. I'm still thinking about how much I enjoyed the concert on Saturday night. That was Thank an you. extraordinary Thank you. way to open. And when you bookend things with Brahms, the F minor clarinet sonata at the beginning, the clarinet quintet at the end, you know you're in for a great evening of, of music making. <laughs> was there a particular tone you were going for in, you know, in, that, in that opening night concert? Well, you know, a lot of that program uh, came into place because of uh, availabilities. Uh, Ricardo Morales uh, was only able to come for two concerts this summer. One was on Saturday and the other is uh, Monday, the, the 22nd of July. Um, he came last summer and, and did a, a really incredibly beautiful performance of the E-flat Brahms clarinet sonata with Anton Nell on piano. So I wanted to... Uh, to feature the other, the F minor sonata this year. So it was either going to be this concert or the 22nd concert. And uh, I've known Ricardo for a long time. I'm a huge admirer of his playing. And I wanted to play the Brahms clarinet quintet with him. I've wanted to for almost 20 years, as long as I've known him. And uh, since I'm the boss, I get to do that. So <laughs> so uh, it, it also uh, seemed, you know, the, the first first night of any, of any one of our festivals is always an occasion, and I yeah. thought that uh, you know, the Brahms clarinet quintet is certainly a it's a it's a lot to digest, you know, a big piece to start uh, a big festival. So mm -hmm. it yeah. uh, it kind of took the program came into play after those sort of Brahms bookends that you were talking yeah. about. Yeah. Well, after some spectacular Beethoven, a trumpeter, very witty gentleman with a <laughs> spectacular purple jacket <laughs> took the stage. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, um, some, of the, some of the touches in presentation. I, and I don't know if that was all very spontaneous, but, but there was even a little mood lighting in, in the concert the other night. And I, I, I thought it worked wonderfully well, but are, are you um, thinking about tweaking presentation a little bit? Um, I think that one of the best things about our organization is that we allow individual performers to be who they are. I mean, anyone that's invited here is invited on the on the merits of what they do, you know, and um, Jens Lindemann is uh, kind of a, a legend in the, in the trumpet world, and I wanted to just give him free reign. I mean, I, I set the repertoire with, of course, with, you know, talking with him and getting his approval, but basically, um, you know, the same with him as with any of our musicians. If if uh, if I'm not in the group, I mean, that's that's their call. They can do it the way they want to, mm -hmm. and uh, and I think that ends up being best because um, you know every one of these people that come here have something very special to say, and I think uh, Jens 
performances on uh, Saturday were spectacular, and he's going to be spectacular through the week. I'm really excited. Yeah. We'll be talking a little bit more about him and um, some other pieces he's going to be playing in. Uh, and, and speaking of putting one's own spin on things, we're going to talk today about Americans and the spin that they have put on chamber music. And in the first case today... About Happy a Canada Day, by the way. Oh, I just that's right. <laughs> this, this was your idea. That was, you've got some explaining to do back home. <laughs> what's, what's James doing on Canada Day? He's talking about American music. Yeah, well. Um, Fourth of July is just around the corner. So, uh, Vorjak. In America. What a great story that is. And you're going to be doing um, an all Dvorak in America program um, at the Volunteer Park Outdoor Concert on the 17th of July at 7 p.m. Um, why was Dvorak on your mind this, this summer? Or well, <laughs> yeah, always is more mm -hmm. like it. I mean, I just love his music so much. Um, his chamber music, I think as a, as a chamber music composer, you know, just the, the amount of absolutely first-class, fantastic chamber music is rivaled by very, very few people. Um, and also, you know, the, the Volunteer Park concert is a, it's a special kind of environment. You know, playing, if you're a symphony orchestra and you play an outdoor concert, you can do the 1812 Overture and you know, <laughs> things that are um, very extroverted musically. You know, a lot of what chamber music is, is music that is not necessarily extroverted music or not necessarily music that's meant to sort of go out, so to speak. You know, it's, mm. it's often, I think, uh, music that draws people in. Certainly in that the Brahms clarinet quintet that we played uh, the other day, I don't think that would be a very good place uh, uh, to play it. You know, uh, if we get 3,000 people at Volunteer Park on a beautiful summer night, you know, to have the Brahms clarinet quintet, I'm not sure that's good programming. But... <laughs> You know, the, the American String Quartet, the American String Quintet, Dvorak's music in general is very, uh, his chamber music tends, with a few notable exceptions, tends to be very friendly stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I thought uh, last year's program with the uh, Dvorak Sextet and the Tchaikovsky Souvenir de Florence, you know, those were also pieces that, where of course they have their moments, so it, it draws the audience in. Those are pieces where the music sort of goes out to the public, and uh, I thought it was a, a good way to engage with people that uh, that might have happened to just drop on by. Uh, so similarly with this this year's concert, I thought, well, what are we doing this year? You know, that is there any sort of thematic element that's coming into play as these programs are coming together? And uh, certainly American music was playing a bit. Uh, a big role, and then I got thinking about um, Dvorak's role in in American music, and sort of in the the ideal of the creation of an American vernacular, mm -hmm. I suppose, in classical music. Um, we can get into this in well, either now or later. But <laughs> sure. Well, let's. The way we'll get into it is let's let's listen just to the opening bars of the American Quartet by Dvorak, um, composed in Spillville, Iowa, 1893. Uh, and uh, yes, Vorjak's a friendly person. He even gives the opening solo to the viola. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we'll talk about maybe what, what it is that makes this music American. Thank you. 
So is it uh, is it the spirit, the character, the 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 notes themselves? You know, it's a little bit chicken and the egg. Like um, he was influenced by the type of folk music, the type of ethnic music that he was hearing in America, but he also was such a major influence that it's it's a little bit difficult to you know the, some of the pieces that he wrote during his time in America ended up being among his most famous works, and this certainly being one of them. And um, we identify that type of sound, the da 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 ba da da you know, that, that type of figuration or some of the melodies, certainly the, the uh, slow movement, you know, we, or think of the New World Symphony, you know, we identify that as American music. Now, was it influenced to a great extent uh, by his experiences in America, or <laughs> the fact that he wrote it, did that influence everyone's sort of perception of what American music then became. You know, it's a little bit of each. Um, of course, you know, back in, in, in those days, everything had to be given some sort of a, a title, you know, and there were all sorts of ridiculous and sometimes politically incorrect names attached to various of his movements. Uh, the, the second movement of his sonatina that he also wrote in Iowa for violin and piano it was given some ridiculous title of Indian's Lament, you know, and it, whatever. I don't, I don't think that he actually ever claimed to hear this, you know, on some native reserve somewhere. Mm -hmm. But, um, but it's hard to say, you know. There, there's people can't help but be influenced by their environment, and certainly Dvorak, you know, as a, as a teacher working with among the most gifted young American composers, as well as passing on his influence to them, he was picking up things from from their vernacular as well. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't resist, um, and there's the violin plays here as well, but uh, <laughs> here's, the, here's just a little bit of the cello solo from the slow movement, which is just uh, uh, so gorgeous from the American Quartet. So is that is that homesickness? Is that the the prairie landscape that he was seeing all around him? You know, to your point, there's a lot that, yeah. that goes into such incredible music making. Like well, that's the great thing about music is we can all choose to hear what we want in it, right? And uh, <laughs> put our own uh, our own 
story to it that uh, makes it most effective to ourselves. Yeah. So this is on the uh, the seventeenth. This along with the American Quintet mm-hmm. in Volunteer Park. I, I wanted to end. I, I loved Dvorak so much. He, he wrote the cello concerto in America. He was inspired by. Victor Herbert, who that time, at that time was the principal cellist of the New York Philharmonic, he heard Herbert play his own cello concerto and said, you can, you can write for the cello. And, uh, and uh, also ta- taught Brahms that lesson. Brahms said, you know, if I figured out that you could write for the cello like that, <laughs> yeah. like you and Herbert have, I would have done it myself. But, but to, to summarize the American Quartet, I used to go on these um, tours with a string quartet of my own right after college, and we would play these little towns, Juneau and Ketchikan in Alaska, and we would do these little outreach concerts. And I was the guy that had to summarize the American Quartet. So they would always drill me beforehand. Dave, remember the four things, trains, kickapoo, birds, and church. What? So the first first movement, that the great rhythm is the locomotion of the, you know, he loved trains, he loved to travel to St. Paul and Chicago and Grand Central Station. Um, Kickapoo was a tribe of Native Americans that he saw perform around Spillville, Iowa. And, uh, you know, a lot of people debate whether it's Indian melody or not, but, but I think that influence is very much there. Um, Birds is the scarlet tanager that he heard when he took walks in Spillville, and you heard the tweaking of the, the bird in the third movement. And uh, church is, he would go into a little um, church in Spillville and play the organ. And in the last movement, amidst all those bohemian dances, you hear this, this sudden um, chorale that sort mm-hmm. of breaks in. And, and it's just, there's so many great moments, all encapsulating what a Wonderful experience he had in America. Mm. Yeah, it was just. Uh, he was well paid too. I'm sure it helps. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Fifteen thousand dollars was per per year. Yeah, fifteen grand a year in a time when people, I think, five hundred dollars was quite a good wage. So yeah, he was he was a happy camper. <laughs> <laughs> Though he did certainly miss. I mean, part of I think pretty much the entire reason that he went to Spillville as a little break from New York City uh, was it was a Czech community, right? I think right, he was exactly. uh, Czech speaking. He was quite homesick, and of course, eventually did decide to to go back to his homeland. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, yeah, that his his the importance of his time in America. I think you can't really overstate it, uh, mm-hmm. and how encouraging he was to young composers in in this country, and how his influence. I mean, you it might seem like a bit of a of a stretch to think, well, how does Dvorak connect to, you know, uh, Lawrence Dillon, our composer the, for our commission work this year. But there is this line, you know, that you can uh, you can trace. Mm-hmm. Um, you and and last factoid about Dvorak, and I was glad that you confirmed this because I had read it recently too. History might have been very different in terms of who Mrs. <laughs> Jeanette Thurber hired at the National Conservatory in New York because she had other candidates for that $15,000 a year job. Yeah, her first choice was Sibelius, who <laughs> turned, turned it down, was unable to, unable to do it. And yeah, that would, that would make for a very, very different 20th century of American music, I would think. Well, that's, that's the novel we're going to write, the revisionist yeah, history okay. of Sibelius instead of Dvorak. So the Opus 11 String Quartet by Samuel Barber is on the July 26th concert, and... This contains one of the great anthems of American music, and we'll we'll play just a minute or so of that, and then uh, you can tell us what that is.
seared into the American <laughs> imagination. Yeah, so that's a theme song from Platoon, okay. as we all know. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, Barbara wrote a lot of uh, music that has been become very well known and and beloved, but uh, I think this is probably the single most famous thing he wrote, and uh, it's much. I think much more widely known in its string orchestra version mm -hmm. where um, Toscanini, I think, if I'm yeah. correct, uh, heard the quartet and commissioned him to expand it into a string orchestra version for the NBC Symphony. Um, it, it's amazing how sometimes a, a composer just um, just gets it right. <laughs> you know what mm -hmm. I mean? With a, with a piece that even by their own lofty standards is just so... Um, miraculous. You know, you think, well, where did that come from? And it's quite different from the surrounding movements. The first and third movements don't sound anything like the second movement. Mm -hmm. It's sort of a, uh, it's almost like an ABA type of piece where the, the first movement and the third movement are very, very similar material. Um, and the second movement, uh, I know Barber is a, he's an unusual composer. He does some strange things with with form and with proportion. Uh, his violin concerto being an, another famous example where he, you have these the first two movements are very lyrical, very beautiful, um, and the last movement is three minutes long and a moto perpetuo. Mm -hmm. And um, I think on first glance, a lot of people, they say, well, this piece is totally out of proportion. Or, you know, people like to say, oh, well, you know, the last moment doesn't work for me. And I think, well, what's he going to do? You know, he just wrote two of the most lush and beautiful 10-minute movements you'll ever hear in your life. What's he going to write a third one? I mean, he knew when, when too much was too much. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, one of the amazing things about the, uh, the string quartet is the difference between those outer movements and the, the central adagio uh, makes the adagio all the more profound and moving. Um, so, you know, I think that that's a, a testament to uh, the genius of a very young man at the point that he, yeah, yeah. That he wrote this. 26 years old, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, and when he had that uh, performance uh, on the um, NBC Symphony broadcast, he was the first American that Toscanini had ever had ever broadcast. Mm -hmm. Toscanini was kind of all about you know Beethoven and and um, composers who had who had passed on, mm -hmm. but uh, he heard Barber and uh, thought that this young man should be um, f celebrated. And what an extraordinary! He was a, he was playing church organ at age twelve. He he was the first class at uh, Curtis Institute mm -hmm. in the 1920s, and um, I think you know part of the the lyrical gift we hear it here and in as you mentioned in the violin concerto or I think of the great melodies in the school for scandal overture mm -hmm. or something like that um, he was a, he was a trained singer he was a wonderful baritone mm -hmm. as well and, uh, so he's pianist composer singer I mean this really was the consummate musician and do, mm -hmm. do you do you sense that hear that as you play his pieces Yeah I think that. Um there's a there's a lot of uh, wonderful elements to his to his composing style, um, but I think that possibly the the most striking is that um, that gift for melody and that that gift for vocal lines, whether they're sung or not. Um, you know, I think I uh, 
I think that's what's commonly thought of with Barber. So I, I uh, almost hesitate to to stress that so much because mm-hmm. that's what everyone <laughs> everyone thinks. I mean, I think that he also was you know kind of a master craftsman and had a great understanding of instrumental virtuosity as well. But but yeah, when you get right down to it with Barber, it's that uh, that gift for melody mm-hmm. that uh, I'm sure was was a, a huge part of who he was from a very young age. Yeah. I love this. Um, I'll I'll end our little. Barber um, excursion. He wrote a piece called it. <laughs> <laughs> um, with this, David Ewan is a scholar on American music, and, and he has this great biographical dictionary, of a, a biographical encyclopedia of American composers. And, and he always ends it every entry with the composer speaks. And mm. I just th- thought this was funny. I don't think composers will think this is very funny, but this is what Barber said. I write what I feel. I'm not a self-conscious composer. One of the physical nurturing components that make my music sound as it does is that I live mostly in the country. I've always believed that I need a circumference of silence. As to what happens when I compose, I really haven't the faintest idea. The point is, I'm not an analyzer, and I don't surround myself with composers. Most composers bore me because most composers are boring. Composers have never helped me. Performers have always helped me. So yeah, uh, well, Barber, he he lived in an interesting time, right? Um, he his music was not looked upon favorably by a great deal of the establishment, and uh, sounds like there might be a touch of resentment in that uh, there, which is understandable, you know. And the fact is that. Barber's music that was considered by some to be not nearly progressive enough um, has lived on, whereas a lot of his contemporaries' music has sort of fallen into the the waste bins of history. But, um, you know, like so many... Well, actually, we're probably going to start talking about Copeland pretty soon, yeah. aren't we? But, you know, Cop- right Copeland and Barber are <laughs> uh, two great examples of, of composers that had unique and uh, very wonderful gifts um, that I think now with perspective we can safely say that their most successful music is the music where they were not afraid to be themselves. You know, Copeland um, was always curious to know what was going on with his colleagues and contemporaries and he made forays into all sorts of 20th century um, techniques of composition, a lot of which just really didn't turn out terribly well, you know, and the pieces that uh, that we remember with Copeland are the pieces where he just was himself, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that with Barber it was the same thing, and I think that, um, you know, sadly, a lot of their earliest music, certainly a lot of Barber's earliest music, is the stuff that has lasted because at the time that he wrote it, he wasn't famous enough for people to be all over him for not being progressive enough, for not, you know, working with the the latest trends in musical composition, whether it's, you know, 12-tone rows or aleatoric stuff or whatever it may be. So, I don't know. I think that... um, it's an interesting time we live in, you know. That uh, even even today, you can't um, you can't help but be influenced by your colleagues, and uh, there are advantages and disadvantages to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, if you feel a certain amount of um, pressure from musical society to write or play music in a certain way that doesn't agree with your nat- your natural instincts. 
1944 uh, is the the date of the Copeland Sonata. And just to mention, you'll you'll be playing this on Friday evening, July 26th. A lot of these uh, performances, and we'll we'll mention it at some point, or are being recorded. Yes, uh, um, it's it's a it's specifically American recording project. Yes, uh, the the label Onyx Classics, which uh, recorded our Mendelssohn Octet that we did here a couple years back in a live performance, and maybe some of you have heard that. Hopefully you play it all the time on your radio <laughs> show. Uh, they were very keen to uh, continue a collaboration, and uh, so we're actually recording two CDs during the final week, um, one of which has a couple of Shostakovich string quartets that actually are coupled with a concerto recording of my own, but uh, the other is... Um, yeah, sort of a, a celebration of this festival and of American music. So that will have music of Barber and Copeland and Ives and Bernstein and Elliot Carter. Am I forgetting anyone? I think that's it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to make for a very busy week. So if you come to those concerts, be very quiet. <laughs> <laughs> We're in training here today with the, with the podcast. Um, let me just play a little bit of this. I, and I think... Um, <clears throat> This is uh, this is the Copeland that we that we know from from other works. Yeah, and, very yeah. much so. Yeah. James just won the Guess the Fiddler contest, um, <laughs> leaning over to me and saying, is that Isaac Stern? Isaac Stern and Aaron Copeland at the piano in this. Uh, I, I don't know that recording. I, I should. <laughs> it sounds beautiful. Yeah, I would like to say that it is the you know, result of diligent research, but YouTube, my friend. You do. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, so 1944, uh, mm. reportedly written for a... a, a a fallen friend. Yeah. Yeah. yeah a lieutenant that died in the war. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does, is that reflective quality a big part of the piece or is, are, are there other references to wartime or how does it unfold in an interesting way? Um, I think it's quite a poignant piece. Um, but it's, again, like, like what we were saying before, it's, it's music that I think can mean different things to different people. It doesn't, um, I think one of the special things about it is it, it, it's moving and it's poignant without being maudlin or obvious in any way. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not a sad piece, it's not a happy piece, mm -hmm. it, it, it's a reflective piece in, in a lot of it. Um, it's also a very, a very important piece in the violin repertoire, I think, just that it, you can probably get a little sense of it from the beginning, but uh, 
there's no other piece quite like it in the way that it's that it's written and at times is very very spare without being dry and um, manages to be technically you know quite involved and challenging in certain ways but always very very clean and clear um, I, I think it's a, it's a wonderful piece that uh, it, it's not by any means unknown but I don't think it's as popular maybe as it should be hmm. kind of surprisingly I, I not about, played that much. I wondered about that with all the you know 1940s and all the all the ballet scores were starting to appear at that yeah. time that it kind of got lost in the shuffle somehow. Maybe a little bit. You know, Copeland um, is one of those composers that um, I think that in a way was a, a little bit a victim of his own success. You know, if you take a look at his five or six most famous pieces, they're played all the time. And because they're played so often, and because still, sadly, there's sort of a limited, there's thought to be a limited market for 20th century American music, you know, the organizations are only going to program a certain amount of Copeland, and they know if they program Appalachian Spring or Fanfare for the Common Man or rodeo or whatever that these pieces are going to be big hits so that's what they stick with yeah. <laughs> and you know had he never written some of those pieces i think some of his other extremely beautiful pieces would actually get played more mm -hmm. i wanted to play just a little little bit 30 seconds or so of this the final movement to again echo what you say that there's this rhythmic vitality here and uh some analysts even say that it's uh that it, this is a, a a riff on a bugle call you know that, mm. that it's supposed to kind of betray its roots as a, as a military, um, a f memorial for a fallen military man. Again, make, make of that what you will. But uh, here's the, a little bit of the opening of the final movement of the Copeland Sonata. Piano does play more than that in other parts. I wasn't paying, you know, being overly deferential to the violinist, yeah. but uh, yeah, he, he really takes it away. And in fact, I mean, the interplay between piano and violin is quite interesting and sophisticated in yeah. terms of the way that the yeah. the rhythms play out. Yeah, yeah, but it's um, you know, like I was saying before, that it is it's so clean in its compositional style that. Um, it doesn't do well with poor performances. There's nowhere to hide, you know? Mm -hmm. There's no sort of lush chords to kind of wallow in, you know, <laughs> throw in some big vibrato and, I mean, it, it, it has to be um, pretty well controlled, pretty well focused. Well, we're moving along chronologically here. So, so uh, we've arrived at Paul Schoenfield, hmm. born in 1947, like Vorjak, I think, uh, musical traveler and seeker with open ears who has, found himself in far-flung flung places, exposed to many different musical cultures and ideas, uh, born in Detroit, went to college in South Carolina, taught at the University of Arizona in Pittsburgh, spent some years of his life 
on a kibbutz in, in Israel. Very. Have you have you gotten to know Paul Schoenfield or? or? I've never met yeah. him. No, I've never met him. Uh, I have some some friends that know him. I think he's a, a reasonably private man. He, yeah, but, I uh, had the I had the opportunity to interview him once, and uh-huh. he's very shy and and scholarly apparently you know highly trained as a scholar in mathematics and hebrew as well as music so this is one of those left brain right brain people um and and then the 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 character of the music uh, in some ways surprises me when you kind of hear that description of him exactly yeah as i mean he's a a, by all reputation you know as you said a a rather serious man and, and brilliant and of course you can hear the brilliance in the music it's incredibly well written but um a lot of his most famous music is pretty lighthearted stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, the piece that is that introduced me to uh, to his music was cafe music, which is a piece that maybe a lot of you would know. It's been programmed not so infrequently here at our festival, and uh, has become kind of a, a staple of contemporary piano trio yeah. literature. And it's just such a a fantastic and such a surprising piece of music when you hear it. I, I, I remember hearing it when I was about 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. I thought, what is this? You know, yeah. It was absolutely not like anything I'd heard before. Yeah. That, that just burst on the scene. In, uh, it was written in 1987 for a chamber concert of the St. Paul uh, Chamber Orchestra. I remember that was my you know, classical music disc jockey days. And when oh, that yeah. recording came in, um, we just played the heck out of it, and yeah. then it, it, it caught on in the festival circuit. And um, so, a few years later, he writes again. Um, you have recorded this um, this music, and what what I'm going to do now before we talk about it a little bit more is um, this is going to be a whirlwind tour through the four souvenirs of, okay. of Paul Schoenfield. <laughs> uh, these are just little little telescopes I've put together, not nearly as artfully played or composed but but um i'll have james talk afterwards about you know the different styles he touches on here because um he touches on a lot of them So 
So that is James Ennis with uh, Andrew Russo. You'll be playing that here at the festival on July 5th. Yep, yeah. Friday. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> you covered, covered some territory there. Yeah, well, he um, it's an interesting disc that uh, that my friend Andy Russo put together because uh, there's a, a piano concerto uh, on it it's called Four Parables, and then there's the Four Souvenirs, and then there's the cafe music with uh, Andy, myself, and Edward Aaron, who is a regular friend of the festival here. Um, yeah, Sean Field just touches on a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of the other thing. The first movement of the um, Souvenirs is uh, called Samba, and you... Uh, can hear that. <laughs> the uh, second movement is a tango. Third movement is called Tin Pan Alley. And the last movement is called Square Dance. So, you know, I think he, I can only imagine that he just was kind of intrigued by the idea of uh, the, these different influences, you know, mm-hmm. and what he could do with them, uh, turning them into sort of violin and piano showpieces. And uh, definitely the idea of souvenirs is. I think very, uh, very clear. You know, it's very apt. It, 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 this is what he took away from some experience somewhere with some uh, style of music, and it's mm-hmm. it's great fun. It's really hard. <laughs> it's really fun no, to play. I was, was going to say it sounds fun, <laughs> but how how is it? what yeah. does it feel like on the other oh, side of it? It's a good time, but uh, but yeah, he certainly is a is a wonderful composer for understanding what instruments are capable of, if only just barely. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Also, this this is such a fun program. I say it's fun for us, but I want to get your perspective (laughs) on this. Another July 5th uh, presentation is um, John Adams' Road Movies, um, Andrew Russo playing in that one as well, and another uh, recording that you've made um, of of, uh, Road Movies. Um, let, let, let's just go right into this <laughs> because uh, this is the final movement, a little bit of the final movement. It's called 40% Swing, mm-hmm. and, and I would subtitle the rest, you know, 60% Fierce Concentration. <laughs> <laughs> so give a listen to this and see, you'll see what I mean, I think. No jazz musician, but it's they talk about swing being walking into a groove and just sort of effort, effortlessly. But what happens when the groove can continually change? Forty percent, forty percent swing is um, is a it's a term from a MIDI, um, you know, a, the, a music sampler basically, oh, okay. um, yeah. where you have. You know, either buttons or a dial, and you can adjust the swing on it. And forty percent is a certain amount. I mean, it's one of these pieces that is tremendously fun to listen to, and 
incredibly impractical to play because what he's actually asking you to do is play this piece that has basically no patterns with accents in very unexpected places, um, very tricky interplay between the instruments, and then swing the whole thing, da 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 which is uh, a little bit much. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I think that the most important thing is for it to, because, you know, 40% swing, it's interesting, John puts it in parentheses, or no, in, 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 um, in quotation. yeah. quotations, yeah, yeah. and... Uh, yeah, exactly. Like we were saying, you know, you were saying you got to get this sort of groove with it. Mm -hmm. um, if he wanted it to be done with a MIDI, he would have just written it for MIDI. But uh, <laughs> but it's really um, it's a really neat piece. This road movies and uh, it has three very very different movie uh, do, movies movements. Uh, the first one called uh, Relaxed Groove, which is just kind of chilling in your car driving down the road <laughs> it's a little bit you know kind of more hypnotic much less frenetic than mm -hmm. this last movement um the second movement is a very challenging thing to play because um he asks the violinist to tune the lowest string the g string down to an f um which throws the entire resonance of the instrument uh off it, it, it's a it's an unusual thing to do with the with the violin it creates a wonderful effect but it's just something that violinists do so rarely and uh, when learning the piece we all get used to knowing where a certain note is on a certain string you say okay c is there but you've tuned your string down and you're like whoa that's not a c wait c is now there and the intervals are all funny and all wrong. And you, you normally, if you, you put your finger down, spread across two strings, you're going to play a perfect fifth, but not if your G string has been turned down to an F. So these <laughs> things get very confusing. And you know, I, uh, Andy and I, we, we played the piece a bunch of years back. Then we recorded the piece. Then we took it on a tour a couple years ago. And now, so I think this is sort of our fourth time bringing it back to life. And Every time I look at my part, I think, why did I not write in more fingerings? Because <laughs> I have to sort of retrain myself for where these notes are. Because I, rem I remember how the music goes. I remember the intervals and all that. But just it's so counterintuitive to put your hand in such weird places to get, mm -hmm. uh, uh, to get these sounds. And then the, the, the meters and all that are, are changing. It's, yeah, you know, it's just, yeah. It seems as disorienting as it could possibly be between between that and <laughs> it's that a bit saying. of a challenge, but but really it's um, it's one of those pieces that as as these things should be, it's complex and challenging for the performers. But I think in a great performance, uh, that doesn't come across as you know it's not it's not written to be a difficult piece at mm -hmm. all for for people to listen to. I think it's one of his uh, more, I mean, for a composer that's already quite quite accessible a lot of the time. I think it's one of his more accessible pieces yeah. and uh, certainly a piece that um, I think audiences respond really well to. We'll see. Yeah. Um, no, completely fun and, and, and absorbing and just dazzling, you know, in its, especially this, this last movement in its, in its virtuosity. Yeah. Lawrence Dillon is the composer of Sanctuary, which will have its world premiere at the festival on July 8th. This is a piece that's part of the work of the Seattle Chamber Music Society Commissioning Club. Um, a little, just a little bit of background about this gentleman. In 1985, we have all these virtuosi. Um, he became the youngest composer to earn a doctorate at the Juilliard School, was immediately appointed to the Juilliard faculty. 
He's now composer in residence at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. Um, how, to what extent have you encountered him in his, in his music? Well, I um, did a chamber music project with um, some, some friends and colleagues in North Carolina, actually uh, the, the violin teacher at East Carolina University. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the pieces on the program I wasn't actually playing in, but it was a string quartet by Lawrence Dillon, and he was around. And uh, we ended up doing a, a little tour, and we, we went to North Carolina School of the Arts. And I was just so taken with this piece, because I got to hear it a bunch of times. Um, and uh, I, I, I just got to know to know Lawrence a bit, and and um, made a point of checking out his new music as it came along, and we became friends. And he would send me recordings of his music as as it was written. And um, I just thought he would be a perfect person for for our commissioning club. He, unlike a lot of uh, contemporary composers, he kind of specializes in chamber music. He's written a mm-hmm. lot of chamber music, you know, string quartets and music for violin and piano and uh, various ensembles, really interesting ensembles. And um, I, I just think he's he's really, really fantastic with what he does. You know, it's like like all great composers, it, um, it's a unique voice. Um, uh, I, I'm really excited for this piece. You know, I'm, I'm playing the second violin part in this oh, okay. sanctuary. So, you know, it's a lot of supporting role stuff. So I'm, I'm still kind of getting a sense of what it's going to sound like. But uh, I'm very, uh, very pleased. Yeah. And I think it's going to be wonderful. It's, it's a septet. So yes. um, how do you even make that determination? Is that the composer's call? Is that your call? Well, you know, I feel like it, you're probably best off letting the composer write what they're most inspired to write. You know, they're, they're, they're pros. You can tell them, write a piece for flute and bassoon and harpsichord. And they'll say, okay, you know, I mean, they, they, that's what these people do. But I've found with commissioning projects that I've been involved with that if you get a composer who has an idea for something already that's already inspired for a certain type of thing, then it's going to be it's going to be successful, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, it, I think that sometimes with composers, and you know, this doesn't speak for all of them, but I know I've spoken to some composers that talk about having a piece inside inside them that needs to come out, <laughs> and so you know, you provide them that opportunity for that to happen. Um, I think that one one thing that I, I think has been a, a really nice tradition with uh, the commissioning club here is that there's been a fair amount of variety in terms of ensemble. You know, it's not like every year we're commissioning a piano trio um, you know it's different uh, and this idea for a septet was um, I think we thought that, um, that it would be fun to do something for a slightly larger ensemble than maybe we have in certain years past but it was basically Larry saying yeah I've got this idea for a septet I think it might be kind of cool and he, <laughs> he has written some pieces for kind of larger and unusual ensembles that are incredibly effective so mm-hmm. I said go for it let's yeah. do it yeah. right there's a lot of talk uh, in, in reviews and things uh, and the little bit of music I've been able to ex- sample of, of his ear for color and, and yeah. unusual combinations and so in this setting where you have piano and this wonderful Trumpeter that we spoke about and winds and strings. Um, oh, he's not on the the Dylan. It's it's a horn. Oh, actually. okay, yeah. All right. So uh, with uh, wonderful Jeff Fair here, yeah, uh, who 
we all know from the symphony. Um, but yeah, it's it's horn, uh, piano, quintet, and bass. Oh, excellent! Yeah, so, but but so that brass Is element. Is that enough players? It? Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted um, to get a sense of. Um, what his music sounds like. Yeah. And as you say, there's been a lot of recording of his chamber music. This is from a recent string quartet of his, um, second string quartet uh, subtitled Flight, the fifth movement. Um, we're on a swing theme. It's called mm -hmm. Swings. And uh, this music uses the form of a fugue, but, um, but we'll, we'll see what else he's trying to evoke here uh, in this music by Lawrence Dillon. So it's got that great imitative mm -hmm. counterpoint, but I was reading that it's um, it's about children on a swing set. There's mm -hmm. this kind of movement of, of, of swinging there that I think mm -hmm. is really delightful. And when you read about his work, it's kind of about taking very old ideas of music and, and, and things that are also very familiar and, mm -hmm. and, um, and um, commonplace in some ways. Right. And so I, I don't know if that's been your experience so far of, of what you've heard of him or other impressions of his music. Yeah, I think that... Um he yeah he sees the world around him and um the, the, with the harmonics coming in there uh in that that performance there it, it's like oh that's a such a good idea <laughs> you know it, it's such an interesting color and yeah that's that's what i like about his music is you know that it kind of brings you to a certain kind of place i feel much calmer having just listened to that right now <laughs> <laughs> I just uh, a little sampling uh, of other works. He wrote a piece called "Right Flight," uh, combining orchestra projected images, three strands of narrative to tell the story of the Wright brothers' first flight, uh, part of the Wright brothers' centennial celebration at Kitty Hawk in uh, December of 2003. I'm the son of an aeronautical engineer, so I loved <laughs> I love the idea of this. Um, and then the better better nature, angels of our nature, a composition for piano, trio, and narrator based on Abraham Lincoln texts. So, um, yeah, in some ways we see he's, he's, he's very much an American uh, composer, obviously, mm -hmm. in subject mm -hmm. matter. But I wanted to, to ask you this final question as we um, wrap up here is, um, you know, and you, um, especially as, 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 a, as, a, as a Canadian programming American music, is it, I mean, is it important at, at an American music festival to, to program American music? Or is, or is that us not thinking globally enough? Is that... Does it, I, I mean, I, I, you know this, this idea of, um, you know, it's so important to program this stuff. Yeah. But. Well, a, a few things. First of all, um, I am a proud Canadian. I grew up in Canada, but I'm also a proud American. Mm -hmm. My parents are Americans. I uh, have had a U.S. passport my entire life. Uh, I've lived in the States for more years now than I've lived in Canada. Um, 
so I guess because of that, I mean, of course, there are important differences between the two countries, but really there are. Um, I spend a lot of time in a lot of different countries, and I, I get to enjoy the, um, the differences, but also, um, I think, get to uh, appreciate that um, things like music really are sort of without borders and boundaries. And normally, I would think it's actually a little bit kind of tacky, I guess, for, for people to you know, really wave the flag wherever they are for, mm -hmm. their, for the compositions of their country. But I think that in America, I think that sadly, there is not enough celebration of the tremendous musical history of this country and, uh, and the in incredible uh, wealth of great repertoire that, um, that American composers have, have given us. So um, honestly, I think that if I were the director of a festival in Canada or in England or in New Zealand, I would probably still want to focus at some point on American music because mm -hmm. I think it's important. And I think that, um, as I said, you know, this is tied into a recording project. And um, from the recording label's point of view, uh, they said, oh, Barbara Adagio for strings. Great. We'll get a lot of radio play for that one. Sounds good. <laughs> and there was a certain it made a certain sense, you know, well, okay, it's in Seattle, that's in America, you know, it's a British label. Um, it's in America, American music seems like a good idea. But from my perspective, I thought, um, with this being a foreign label that um, receives a lot of a lot of attention in Europe, um, I thought this was also a way to make sure these pieces are heard. Because, I mean, it's, it's absolutely crazy that some of of the pieces, you know, like I say, American music is not well enough known in this country. So you can only imagine, like, in in Europe, I mean, most of this music isn't known at all. I played a, I've played performances of the Barber Violin Concerto in cities in Europe where it has never been heard before. You know, you think, this is, this is insane. People need to know this music. It's, it's, um, it's sad, really, because mm -hmm. it's uh, it's beautiful, enriching stuff. You know, people's lives would be better if they knew the Barber Violin Concerto. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I think that that uh, this is an important uh, way for us to do our little part in uh, sort of preaching to the world about yeah. uh, the greatness of American musical history. Well, it, it takes us right back to the composer that we began with. You know, there was a reason that Vorjak, you know, came back <laughs> there a moment ago. Yeah. It's because he... He helped Americans discover what they had in their midst. Mm -hmm. um, I had this great moment uh, meeting with uh, Joseph Horowitz, who's written this book called Classical Music in America, and he's a New York-based scholar, and I was, happened to be studying with him on a fellowship, and, and we were in Carnegie Hall. And he knew that I was a cellist, and I, I loved Dvorak, and he, he sort of took me aside, and he, and he takes me in the hall, and he points up, and he says, there's the box that Dvorak sat in on... Uh, um, uh, December 16th, 1893, the night that the New World Symphony was, was premiered. And, mm. and he said, you know, his wife sat there and his, his students sat, the, and he named the students. And, mm. and he had um, a number of African-American students, you know, mm -hmm. who, um, Harry Burley was one of them, uh, the, who, the, the great baritone, who played him, um, you know, slave songs that Burley had been taught by his grandfather. So, mm. you know, Dvorak was here helping us, you know, coming from outside to help us understand just what we 
what we had and mm -hmm. should and and should develop and um, and that kind of you know global <laughs> globalism in the in the 1890s is i think you know something that's very exciting about music and that music can kind of uniquely accomplish indeed yeah i agree so congratulations on the great start of the festival wonderful programming and uh, we wish you well um, in the rehearsal this afternoon and all that you're, you're up to. So James Thanks Ennis, thank you very, very much. Thanks, Dave. So that brings us to the end of this Classical Conversations produced by the Seattle Chamber Music Society as a podcast. On uh, July 19th, the native of Squim, Washington, one of the world's great concert violists, a member of the Ennis String Quartet, Richard O'Neill will be with us here in our little podcasting den, and we'll talk to Richard. Also, um, Adam Neiman, um, who, um, who insists on using an iPad when he, uh, when he reads his music. <laughs> I want to find out more about that, and he's going to come in and talk to us on uh, the 10th of July. Jeremy Jolly produces these programs. Bill Levy, our recording engineer, I'm Dave Beck from KUOW Public Radio 94.9. Thanks so much uh, for joining us today and enjoy the Summer Festival.